Hey everyone and welcome back to Bookish. I'm so thrilled to be back and sorry to have made you all wait so long, but here we are. Better late than never. My first guest for season two is my great friend, Kate Walsh. You all know Kate as Addison Montgomery from Grey's Anatomy and then her show Private Practice. You may also know her as Olivia Baker on 13 Reasons Why, currently on Netflix. Kate is a magnificent actress and also the founder of Boyfriend Perfume. And Kate was lovely enough to have me in her home. She was renting a place in Malibu at the time, which was very convenient for me. And we recorded this very shortly after Kate had had major shoulder surgery. And it was so lovely to have her and so fun to sit and talk together about books in a way that she and I occasionally do, but not in depth like this. So I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I loved recording it. Here's Kate Walsh. Hi, lovely Kate Walsh. Hi. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> I'm so excited. It's so fun to have you. What are you reading at the moment? Well... I I'm, now I feel everything I say I feel embarrassed about saying so let's just start it with that okay, I feel highly point. unqualified and totally embarrassed but someone just gave me the book Women Who Run with the Wolves uh-huh. have you heard of this yes I have it's well a- it sounds like a book that I would when someone told me this person told me about it I rolled my eyes internally thinking oh this sounds like the, it's the worst name ever it sounds very self helpy from the eighties but it's actually not it's about it's sort of the well, sort of the Iron John, I think, for women. It's all mythology. And, and, I think I've read it. I think I've and read it's, it. And it's very, it feels very Kim. Yeah, I was know. about to say, I think Kim may have talked it's about very, it. very, yeah, yeah, like all sorts of mytho- mythology and sort of soul work and Jungian-based. And she's a Jungian sort of therapist. And so I just, I but because I was knowing I was going to be doing this podcast, I've been sort of rereading everything. Um, and dipping back into old books. and We should say that you're not even in your house at the moment. You're in a rented house. I am in a rented house. all your stuff is in storage. That's correct. Which, having just done this podcast myself, I have just been sitting through my own interview with my friend Joe. I realize how badly I relied on my bookcases when Joe was asking me, you know, to send him my five books. And to be able to dash around them. And even though the five that I ended up with, not all of them were on the bookcases, I used them as prompts in such a big way to be like, oh yeah, what else was I loving in that moment? And as I was driving here, I was thinking, oh, you didn't have access to that. Did you just go online? Did you just sit and think? Well, I have one stack of books that I brought with me that's in my bedroom, um, but mostly books that I haven't read. A couple that I love, but that I and I have read. But mostly, I thought, you know, since I'm going to be here at the beach, it would be a great opportunity um, to just read and catch up and try to get to all these books that I haven't read. But I just, it was a great opportunity, actually, the process, which was daunting and, and terrifying. And I felt like I was preparing for, you know, a massive um, exam, <laughs> so even bad. though you said don't <laughs> feel that way. I still did because I was afraid of sounding like an idiot. But the, the biggest gift was it just a theme of recollection mm. and going back and like the gift of going back into my childhood and mm. thinking about and so the biggest surprise was the first uh, book Cannery Row mm. which is um, I just always make sure that we tell people what it is so yeah. Cannery Row John Steinbeck published 1945 what made that why Why did that make the cut which one? this was so crazy because again I was thinking and it happens to be that I'm in Malibu I'm in this dreamy kind of 
you know, place that I've, I've always sort of fantasized about being on the sand and tide pools. And so I, I had been thinking about like the origin of me reading and, you know, as a child, of course, like, you know, Dr. Seuss and all these things and the Velveteen Rabbit and Phantom Tollbooth and all the, but my stepfather, it was this great recollection of the relationship that I started with my stepfather Mm -hmm. who came into my life when I was seven. And he was really hugely responsible for giving me books and encouraging that part of myself and we moved around quite a bit but one thing that I had done with my family both before my parents were divorced and subsequently with my stepfather and my mother was we we camped up and down the coast of California a lot that's what we did when we took our holidays and stuff and there were all these beach towns in Monterey and Pismo Mm -hmm. Beach and Carmel and Big Sur and so he thought it would be interesting to give me a book at, I'm not kidding, like nine. Right. By John Steinbeck, mm-hmm. because it was it was written about all the places that I had explored. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that age, I didn't think anything that I'm reading. <laughs> I was probably the only nine-year-old reading John Steinbeck. Probably. But it was a funny thing, because when I would go to... And it wasn't, like, in any kind of arrogant way, but I would want to... Exp- you know, share it with other kids. Like, are you reading Steinbeck? <laughs> no? Pity. Um, but... <laughs> More's the shame. <laughs> but, but for me, it was this magic as a child of like, wait a minute, someone's writing about what I know. Right. That was mind-blowing to right. me. I'm reading about Monterey, about the canneries, which of course, you know, in the late seventies when I was reading this book had already been shut down and turned into sort of museums or whatever. But the tide pools and all of these beaches in the sort of that area of California and also it was twofold. So one to have the experience of someone writing about what I had experienced as a child was I was like, I didn't even know that was possible. So that was really cool. But secondly, I had already experienced so much in the way of sort of divorce and the dissolution of my family. And the, the, my father, uh, you know, had been an alcoholic and there was all this shame and a lot of drama around Mm -hmm. the divorce and, 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 and everything that happened between my parents and my family also in California. So, that to have someone write about characters that were, you know, drinking a jug of wine a night or these crazy characters that were all sort of lovable in such a loving way that Steinbeck did with, you know, these brothel owners and people that were in and out of the out of jail and sort of with such humanity and love mm-hmm. was like it made me feel less alone yeah. and like completely oh, I'm I feel like an outsider already. And yet there's this band of misfits that he's writing about that I love. And he wrote in such this, this kind of folk way of story. I don't know how to describe it, but that I, I just felt like it was very easy to read Mm -hmm. for me. And I immediately was just lost and in love with this world. And then I remember later years, they made the movie, they made a movie. And I remember going, Oh, well they, well, they took, you know, Sweet Thursday and Canary Row and made it into the... I was, you know, it was the first time right. I had had that experience uh-huh. of, well, that's not really my movie. That's not my movie, you know? sure. So, so, but that was, uh, I had forgotten all about that. And did you feel when you'd read it, 
were you able to sh- did it make you feel less of a misfit to be able to share it like did your brothers and sisters read it you- no, no no one else was reading it, it was I just felt you. like it was probably the beginning of me escaping into that fantasy world right. but I felt seen and shared and understood and heard by because of Steinbeck and all these people I was right. like oh these are this is great mm. you know and it sort of I credit it with really I just like any book starts mm. you know sets fire to your imagination but right. makes you feel less alone or you're like I love this world yeah. and again it was that big component or element of there's no shame mm. for any of these people yeah it's so interesting because it's one of the Steinbecks I haven't read and so it was fun reading about it and just looking up and seeing what it was about and the 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 essence of the plot was so simple from what I'd from what I read it's that Mac and his friends are trying to do something nice for their friend Doc so they decide to throw him a party yeah and then it all goes horribly wrong and the party rages out of control (laughs) and then Doc's lab and home are ruined and then to return to his graces they decide to throw him another party and this one goes better and I just was so struck by how what a simple premise that is and then how you draw a whole community in with that very simple idea. And there's something about best intentions going awry that I can imagine. I mean, I'm, I was interested that it was your first book. I didn't imagine you were only nine when you read it. But, but that would feel so relatable as a child, that as a child we so often have good intentions that go awry. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. More so often as an adult. But as a kid particularly, you know, the careful attempt at making your mum breakfast in bed but meanwhile the kitchen is trashed you know what I yeah. mean like, well in the madness the- because I you know to be sure I heard my house was a jungle it was crazy our, our family was really it was pretty nuts before my parents got divorced so to have an experience of kind of madness that was all entertaining and lovable and somehow you know, good intentions, even if it went bad, it was okay. Mm -hmm. And we'll just try again and do another party. But I do remember feeling like I wanted to share it with other people and there was no one else, you know, my age to to share it with, you know. I did talk to my stepdad about it, you know, but no one else. Like No, I relate to that too. I think of uh, reading as something that was both... Um, and to this day, really, I mean, I have girlfriends I'll share, you being one of them, that I'll share a book recommendation with. But but reading is at once this sort of lonely experience and deeply soulful experience of finding community because it's mm-hmm. so it's so private it's not the shared experience of going to a movie or sitting at home watching a tv screen or even listening to the same piece of music together yeah my experience of cannery row at 42 is going to be different to yours at nine is going to be different to mine if had i read it at nine you know they're just mm-hmm. it's both so private and yeah. can either confirm your solitude or as it sounds like also make you feel like you're seen and that there's a there's a world that you belong in yeah yeah. Yeah. I see that. Well, your next book that you gave me was Howard's End. Yeah. Um, is that the next one? That is that chronologically the next one you'd want to talk about? Yes. That, um, and I feel like there is, I was like, there is kind of a theme here too, because this is also, you know, we have the, I mean, others too, but our generation particularly has the kind of experience of growing up in the age of film and television and and that being a, you know, arguably the kind of main format of storytelling or the most popular mm-hmm. in, in, in the late 20th and early 21st century. So as such, I kind of felt like, oh, I can't talk about these without talking about films right. as well. Sure. Right? I mean, sure. I didn't even think about how or about Cannery Road, the movie, but I remember being very excited as a kid. I was like, uh-huh. I read that book. I can't uh-huh. wait. And um, then always being so disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it was, Howard's End was... 
I, I picked that one because that again, it was, I was a freshman in college, I think. And I was taking a course in modern British literature. Where were you at college? At university of Arizona, which was actually the number one party school in the nation. <laughs> but I, I didn't know about that. I just was born in, or I was in Tucson and that was my state school. And I was like, I'm going to go here. And I probably had no business going cause I changed majors like 800 times. And what did you start out with? Well, I thought start out with my mom's like get a degree in computers because that you know <laughs> only my brother Joe had gone to college. Before. Yeah, get it computers, right? <laughs> so good. So I started out in business, and then I quickly switched to like poli sci. I don't know that sounded vague uh-huh. enough. And then I was like, what am I doing? And then I thought, oh, I'll. I, I landed on general studies, which was an option, which was three you could do. So I picked English, uh, modern British lit. Uh, art history and Italian. Perfect. Yeah, it was great until yeah. I eventually dropped out and just went and did acting. You know, I was like, <laughs> but but because my brother went there before me, um, the best thing was he got me into these English classes that were three hundred and four hundred level, mm-hmm. where you could just read and talk about books and write essays on them and stuff. So I had a couple of great professors and Roger Bowen was this one, and his was modern British lit, and so Ian Forster, Howard Zend. 1945, uh, no, 1910, sorry. Yeah. that came out, yeah. And that, I had just just broken up with my first big love of my life. Mm -hmm. I had this very sort of young relationship from 15 to 19. Wow. And his mother was very, a huge part of that relationship. He, she was uh, Mrs. Salins. She was like Mary Poppins. And I didn't have that kind of a mother growing up. And she was so attentive. And she was the most, so... Ending that relationship was also ending the relationship with her, which was huge, like a big mm. trauma for me, losing that. Did you end that. up because of going to university or were you already there? I was already there. And so we had broken up sometime in the beginning, mm. like, you know, and this was shortly thereafter. It was probably like my second year at school that mm-hmm. I was reading this. And the mother, Mrs. Wilcox, in that book, I just was obsessed. I felt like the whole thing in her, in the home. And also I had this thing because I had moved so many times. Like, literally, I think I moved 15 or 17 times before college. Um, I had this sort of mythic idea of home and this very, like... I still, you know, and I, now I end up moving as an adult all the time, but mm-hmm. I really for a long time was obsessed and, and with what I couldn't have, which mm-hmm. was like a family home sure. or someone, the idea of a country home or this place where, and this family, the Wilcoxes and just there, they were sort of insane and beautiful and wonderful. And she was this mother that roamed the garden and it was like the embodiment of home and mm-hmm. mother. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. Mm-hmm. I just, it was my favorite book and the line, you know, only to connect. This is just mm-hmm. the, that was just it for me. And none of the other, that for, for me, that was my favorite book of, of Ian Forster's mm-hmm. and for that reason. And I, and then I remember when that, film came out and I was just like I was infuriated infuriated I was like this is not my movie and I finally at that time understood like oh no don't go see it don't go see the films because of the book you love because you know for lack of a better explanation there I make you know so you have your own film you have your own movie you have your own I mean you it's just funny the power of creating these characters whether they're described to you or not but just having a real visceral soulful experience of who these people are i totally agree i think also they say you know um that it's a second degree novel that makes a great movie that a great novel 
by definition, cannot make a great movie because a great novel is interior. A great novel is about these tiny schisms and moments and interiority, I think, anyway, yeah. that, that you can't put on There's the screen. No. There's no way in, no matter how accomplished the actress. You don't yeah. know that she's thinking about her... Um, you know, third birthday as she walks down the aisle towards the man she doesn't want to marry, or the do you know what I mean? Like, right. you don't, you no, don't, there's, there's no, no way. way that's to right. That's right. That so you can't. So you you forfeit so much from the movie. I know, and it's almost like my own greed. Our own greed wants to try to make the movie. You know, right. like I don't want it to end. I don't want the story to end. I want to bring it to a different kind of life. As opposed to, well, the best you really can do is go back and reread it and see what, and then even then it's going to be a different experience, you know? Yeah. Have you reread it since then? I just started a little bit since I knew I was going to do this, <laughs> but no, I haven't. I, it was fun again when I was reading about your books and I thought, oh yeah, oh Howard's End, I know that. Let me just quickly look it up. And I look it up and I'm like, oh fuck, no, I never read this. It's I so saw the good, movie. right? Oh, you I, saw yeah, the movie. I saw the yeah. movie and I realized as I was reading it and I sort of then went in and somewhere on the internet you can actually leaf through the book kind of yeah. thing. So I was leafing through it and I was like, no, I don't know these people. I thought I did, but no, I actually don't know them. I know the, um, what's the name of the people that made the movie? The Merchant Ivory. Merchant Ivory. Yeah. <laughs> I know them in this. I don't know these individuals of it. So this has now gone on the list of things that I want to. It's great. I love because just even in perusing it again, I I was like, oh, you go right in with the letters. There's just an intimacy mm. and a quickness to. You're dropped. He has this magical way of just dropping you right into the world mm. immediately, and with these. And there's, I feel like I'm a guest in their house, and I'm yeah. or like I'm watching, and yeah. I felt so included. And so there's all these like sort of psychological, emotional things that really worked on me. Again, it brings it back to this family that my first boyfriend, the Salins, and his mother, and feeling included and feeling immediately a part of a very traditional home right. that I never had mm. you know I relate to that so much I remember I, I could list you the boyfriends I picked because of their families yeah I mean, <laughs> and when I bro- when we broke up it wasn't I wasn't of course it was a big loss to have a breakup with with him we had been together and we were kids and but it was really the mom yeah and that was really devastating for yeah. me did you stay friends he you mean with a guy both he well he remember eventually remarried it was very sort of old school kind of romantic sad you know he was like I'll wait for you when you get this acting thing because I left Tucson and I wanted to go you know do theater be an actress he's like why don't you I'll give it a couple years in Chicago why don't you see how you feel when you're you know and I'm like okay yeah maybe I'll get it out of my system and that will be the end of that and you know that was sort of the sad beautiful thing I know I know (laughs) and so eventually he got married and Mm -hmm. he didn't feel it was appropriate to keep in contact which of course I was like why and then I was like oh okay I got (laughs) it and his and the mom I eventually saw years and years later Mm -hmm. but no in the time when it was really critical she of course chose her son you know and it was so this odd thing that I don't even know if any but your number one talks about that like mm. those odd moments of like oh I will lose this entire, you, entire support group. system yeah. and family yeah. yeah which was and and, and devastating to yeah. me and you're so right and I think it's such a huge part particularly of those teenage years of of needing needing something to push against like you can't rebel unless you've got a family that can contain that was rebellion. exactly what happened I yeah. had this Mary Poppins like I mean, the most loving, incredibly maternal, like, I just, I've never felt so loved and embraced, and 
then had to leave it. Mm. I grew up. I grew up. Mm. I was like, I got to go now. Mm. And I remember that moment, too, of her seeming just infallible and completely perfect and then seeing her as an adult and Mm -hmm. her fallibility and things that I disagreed with with her. And I was like, and yeah, but it was, it's so hard Mm. that because I had this completely different childhood experience where I felt, I felt like the adult most of my childhood. And then to be able to have this beautiful experience from 15 to 19 with feeling like a child and feeling taken care of Mm. and loved and nurtured and was really, really incredible. And then, and then by that weird thing that you just said of like, Oh, I have to leave now. I have to, grow up and be in the big bad world I can't mm. just stay in this protected nest mm. yeah so did you had you been to England by this point when you read Howard's End no no Mm-mm. and that isn't it funny I, and again I relate to this too that because it's so specific the world Forster writes about and it's so yes it's so of its time you know pre-war and Edwardian and these country houses and these social codes and the hierarchies, they're so strict. And, and you know, part of me was, when I was looking at your books and I was thinking, I wonder what in Kate resonated with this book. Like, I wonder what part, you know, I didn't know it was going to be that college and all of that. And I was thinking, I wonder if she'd been to England yet, because presumably it was going to fall somewhere in the early chapters of your yeah. life. And and then I was thinking, and yet it doesn't, it so doesn't matter. I mean, there are Japanese kids who've never set foot in England for whom Jane Austen is, is yeah. God, you know. Well, and the landscape and these cultures, or whether it's Dickens or whether it's yeah. Forrester or whether it's Bronte, or it's so specifically drawn out and so, it's so richly, uh, the tapestry and details mm. of it that you feel, I felt like I was there. Mm. And the fantasy that is just like solidified, or mm. I just felt like, oh, it's like the longing for something that I'll never be able to experience, right. even if, you know. Right. But I, and years later, I mean, I did in my, I guess, mid-20s, I went to England, but but I didn't have that this experience. No. I didn't go to anybody's country house. I didn't, um, <laughs> you know, it was completely different. You didn't mistakenly inherit an enormous I country I did not. Pie. And the Oxford Too School bad. of Drama was a totally <laughs> different experience than, um, yeah, Howard's End. But I did, it did start that, course in that the University of Arizona with Roger Bowen, who was British, and modern British literature started this real love affair for me of British mm. writers and this mm. clean, very and very male. Mm. I really I I really who felt else did you love I mean, or? I loved um this guy who did uh the magazine, The Collector, Fowles, John yeah, Fowles. John Fowles, yeah. Um, I didn't know you loved him. Oh, my God. That oh, was all, really? I was like, well, do I do The Collector? Because that was a great one for me. Um, it's funny. That's one my mum put me on to. Martin Amos. Yeah. I mean. But you sound like you were well on the way to being a reader anyway. If yeah, were, if I had. If you were reading Tannery Row at yeah, nine. Yeah, and so I had, but I had read up until then mostly, I think, American mm-hmm. authors, mm-hmm. you know. But men, mm. you know. Interesting. I, uh, except for, no, Flannery O'Connor. I started reading her short stories and plays, and, and um, that 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 was really great. But I did kind of develop this very sexist attitude. What changed it? Has anything changed it? Amy Bloom. Really? Mm-hmm. Is, well, that's she came. She's not the next one on your list. But do you want to jump to her since she's? Well, what? There? Yeah, sure. Who was the next one? You on had list? Barrel Fever and other oh my stories. God. David Sedaris, nineteen ninety-four. Yeah, that was really. 
Yeah, we could. I don't know which one. Where you, you wherever you want to go. Barrel Fever. Let me talk about David Sedaris because that was a super romantic time in my life where I had just moved from Chicago to New York. Mm-hmm. I just started making a living erratically, sporadically as an actor, waitress, actor, waitress, actor, and struggling in, in New York, but in the most romantic way. There was a mass sort of Chicago exodus at that time where. All of us came over. It was Adam McKay, Amy Poehler, Tina Fey. You know, they were doing Upright Citizens Brigade. So there was this huge community of all of us that were still, like, waiting tables but doing our crazy late-night improv shows. And, like, we were, like, papering for UCB and helping and... It was my sketch comedy then too. Yeah, yeah. and improv, long form yeah. improv. There was this group called Burn Manhattan that Shira Piven directed that I did. It was like five guys and me doing improv, and it was like there was. I mean, when I moved, when I was in Chicago, it was a huge, obviously still a great mm-hmm. improv scene, but there was a really, it was a special time. Like, you know, geez, Dave Keckner, Lauren Katz, so many great improvisers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, and it was this long form style that was developed by Del Close and 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 that sort of just one suggestion or not and it was just beautiful it was like watching jazz really yeah. um, in fact there was a team in, called Jazz Freddy that was incredible to, mm-hmm. like these just genius people and um, much better than I ever was but they, they were just incredible so it was a really magical time in New York and it was like when Conan just started mm-hmm. and Andy Richter and Sarah Thayer and, and all of us so it was this very rich community and it was the first time I lived in a city that was purely like a city like a proper like mm-hmm. Chicago is a, I think like the quintessential American city but you don't have to have a car in, or mm-hmm. in, in or you have to have you, in New York you can get by just on the subway yeah. so I, it was the first time I had the experience of riding a subway all the time and I didn't have any money for cabs so I was and having a book in yeah. the subway which is such a special experience. So great, isn't it? I know, I smile just thinking about it. Yeah. And so to have a book, and then to have a book, and also David Sedaris lived in New York, in Brooklyn, and he was just coming about then. And it's so to first read, collection of short yeah. stories, yeah. So to read Barrel Fever, it was the first time I read a book that made me laugh out loud. <laughs> and so that was just sort of this, when I was thinking about books that changed my life, the idea of just being on a subway amidst a train full of, you know, strangers laughing, hit like uncontrollably, like wet my pants laughing at these, <laughs> at these stories. And I had never heard him, you know, later I heard him read his work, uh, you know, and do, sure. uh, but I had never heard him read aloud, which was also great. But again, great writing or things that touch you personally, you have your own, you don't even need to hear, I didn't need to hear his tonal inflection to right. make me laugh. It was what he, how he wrote, it just... And the ridiculousness, and again, identifying because of the ridiculous shit jobs that you take to, and the experiences to, as you're trying to find a way to subsidize your art and get by. So that was just really magical. It's you know? so fun. I, yeah, I agree. I was so glad when I saw his name on your list. I was like, yeah, no one's had a Sedaris yet. This is so true. He's huge. And particularly for someone like you, who is so, so funny and whose humor is so just defiantly self-deprecating in in spite of how enormously beautiful and accomplished you are but it's but it's true lovey and and i and i was thinking like oh yes of course that makes complete sense that he would be on your list because because you know the the main story of the the barrel fever I, i pulled it down off the shelf to have a look at it 
and remind myself about it. And, you know, half of them are short stories, fictional, and then the other half is autobiographical. Right. So it's both. And But the best stuff, to my mind anyway, is the autobiographical stuff. And the main one yes. is, is Santaland. Santaland. being the and, elf Oh, my God. Santaland. And I was just Santaland like... Santaland Diaries. It's, it's... Talk about turning straw, spinning straw into gold, man. That's I know. it. And in the midst of that comedy period in your life, it makes such sense that this would resonate. Too. And just that weird thing about it, like that when the first book that made you laugh out loud, yeah. you know, that was just a really... Oh, it was such a delight. I just remember I couldn't get wait to get back on the train and read that book. It was like my train book, yeah. you know? I still love him. Do you still read him? Do you still go, go and yes. read him? Yes, yeah. Like whenever he's coming to... He comes to... UCLA I heard him I think the first time I actually heard him was at UCLA years and years ago when I first moved here yeah yeah his his you're right his voice is so distinctive and once you've heard it you can't unhear it I like, know you can't read a Sedaris thing I in know. New Yorker and not hear him saying it anymore. I know I know this Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew, ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh, no. Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Um, well, now let's go to um, your next book, which is Amy Bloom. Uh, Amy Bloom's book, Away, which yeah. was published in 2007. And this is another one that I, I know I have on a bookcase and I've never read it. So oh. tell me a little bit. About, tell me what you remember about it or without feeling like you have no No, with so. her, here was, a, okay, again, I'm, this is, I'm admitting it. I had been sort of a, other than like the Bronte sisters or something, I remember... I think because going back to when I first started reading and a, a good deal of even childhood books were male protagonists. There were heroes having these fantastic experiences. And that's what I identified with was mm. the adventure that boys were having. And they were written mostly by men. And so I didn't, and I didn't have, maybe it's because my stepdad wasn't mostly the one who was giving me the books. It wasn't my mom. Mm-hmm. I wasn't, I didn't have Heloise. I didn't have these sort of quintessential children's stories that were girls. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really identify with a hero. Mm. Did the girls seem wimpy? Did they seem, or just unrelatable? Well, just in some ways, like I loved, you know, like Wuthering Heights, the longing for I was surprised Wuthering Wuthering Heights didn't make the cut. It was on there, but I took it off. (laughs) Because, I mean, mean, that longing and the unrequited love, I mean, that was like, oh my, I mean, that was my, you know, narrative, I think until probably just a year ago. (laughs) But, but... Longing, so amazing. It's the best drug in the world is longing. So, but I did sort of have this sort of sexist attitude, and I felt like a lot of female authors that I had heard about or heard other friends until I met you. Really, honestly, they were. It was a lot of sort of chiclet, if you will. You know, beach reads. But the modern British literature, Russian literature, there are these like and the classics mm-hmm. for me I just felt like that that richness is what my imagination really mm-hmm. needed to pull me into mm-hmm. a world and keep me there and then I was there mm-hmm. you know it's like 50 pages into a book 100 and then you're like I don't want to be anywhere I just want to get back to my book yeah um but with Amy Bloom I forget how who told me about her the first book that I read was called Come to Me and I can't remember if those were short stories but I would I would describe it now in retrospect as the first time I was reading someone who was writing from the female gaze, if mm, you will. Sure. And she was so 
smart and mm-hmm. so emotional and intelligent. There was something, I don't know how to describe it, mm-hmm. that I was just blown away by. I wanted mm-hmm. to read everything she wrote. Mm-hmm. And then I did, and I got Away, mm-hmm. which is this epic adventure. And this amazing female protagonist and all of these characters. And still to me, whether it's scripts or books or character and story, or the, that's it, it's character and story, mm-hmm. character and story. And this thing was so dense and beautiful and heartbreaking. And all of the characters were so incredible that this away was the first time I actually wanted this now. I read it probably 10 years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. that... I was like, I want to make this into, Ah. I want to make this into something. And I thought it was the perfect piece. It was just when the television miniseries or, you know, limited series started happening. Mm -hmm. And, and, but it was, it was a little too early, but I remember I actually got to go meet her in New York Mm -hmm. and she was teaching, I forget what university, which she teaches that she lives upstate and teaches and she's this fascinating woman. Mm. And, you know, we shopped it around for a bit and I didn't get it made in the end, but I did. Mm. And then I didn't have enough power. Mm -hmm. It's just trying to produce it, you know, and get it uh, to get it made. But she was incredible. But I still love it. And Mm. I still think it would be like an incredible. So if anybody wants to go get that, (laughs) go talk to Amy. Hook me up. (laughs) And make it happen. But it's not even, there's not even a role for me in it. It's just an incredible story. It's Mm. historical. It's, you know. Do you remember what it's about? Set around the pogroms. It's about this woman who loses in a day her entire village and family in, um, like, I think, I don't know if it's the Cossacks, but the pogroms come in and just, Mm. like, destroy her village. She's Jewish. She gets on a boat, comes to New York City, starts working, like, in a button factory or something. Mm -hmm. And and then from there, it's just this adventure. It's, like, part Jewish immigrant, part she ends up prostituting herself. She she finds out that her child might be alive, that may have gotten out of the village and rescued and Mm -hmm. went across. It becomes like this mythic epic journey Mm -hmm. of her crossing the country, crossing America, and then ending up in life. And she she starts out as this sort of orphan in the world and immediately people are starting to try to take advantage of her. And then just all the characters that she meets across on her journey and her own journey of strength and discovery Mm -hmm. and She's like a female Jeremiah Johnson. She mm. becomes like this. It's an incredible role for mm. a young actress. And all these great characters that she encounters mm. all along the way. And there's just amazing female stories and history mm. in it. Because it's, it's all turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, mm. 19th to 20th uh, America. And it's incredible. It's it sounds a- wonderful. I mean, like I said, when I read about it, I was like, nope, this is another one I haven't read. And... I mean, reading about it and what you've just talked about, the, this odyssey that she's on, this journey from just geographically New York to Alaska, I think she ends up yeah, in. And yeah. thinking... Then, and her lover and their men and relationships and the mother and trying to find... So much happens. Mm. But it also, just the point of it being a heroine, but she, she's having a hero's sounds journey. Like a hero's and, 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 and I think like, that yeah. that's what... Amy Bloom, and she writes about all these. She wrote a book of essays just on transgender, transsexual, trans, mm. all these that were nonfiction just to study. And because she's also was a psychiatrist and mm. and and or psychologist, I think. And just she's just a fascinating person. That sounds fascinating. I'd love to read that collection. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, and I'd I'm love to go back and read that too. But. Really struck by what you're saying about I just did my podcast and my my interview, and not one of my five authors were women. 
And I hadn't thought of that until you commented on that. And I think of myself as someone who is such, so ungendered when it comes to recommending or thinking about books or, you know, sorting through or, and I, I wonder, I had a moment while you were talking of being sort of momentarily distracted and thinking, oh my God, there was no women in my list. And is that, is that a current, is that something I don't even know that operates right. on me? Right. And then I think, no, I mean, Elizabeth Strout is someone I feel about in, yeah. this, in the way that, you know, you mm-hmm. were talking about Amy Bloom and I think, oh, yeah, I think of Elizabeth Strout in that way. And, you know, I first discovered her with Olive Kitteridge and which is, I think, one of the few things that translated to film really beautifully. Actually, yeah, actually, yeah. Like, I haven't read it. that. I read the um, Anything is Possible. Yes. Because I, I do everything you tell me to do. <laughs> What are you reading? It's a really, yeah. really good uh, thing to be. Just, just a baby cake. You'll, you'll be fine. Stick with me. Um, but yeah, no, Olive Kitteridge is wonderful. And like I say, one of the few really successful adaptations where you get this amazing collection of short stories and then this beautiful HBO, um, Frances McDormand. Yeah, it was incredible. It. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I read everything by her. I mean, as soon as I discovered her, I was like, Elizabeth Strout, where have you been my whole life? But then I realized that you, you're right. They're, they're not, there are many men that I have done that with. Richard Yates. Um, yeah. Um, you know, um, Richard Revolutionary Ford. Road, yeah. Um, I know, you know, I was just looking at, he was on my shelf, was Men he? and Women. Was it Men and Women? Women and Men. And women, women and Men, yeah. yeah. I was just looking at that, I'm like, oh um, my God. There are, you know, Henry James, there are a bunch for me for whom I've just needed to devour everything they've they've written. John Fante is another, weirdly. But, um but not as many women that I've that I've compulsively felt like I need to read, I need to know you, I need to know you mm. inside and out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm ponder what's that his one. name? You know, Ian, Ian, McCall- Ian McEwen. Ian McEwen, yes. Yeah, that's another. I mean, I, Atonement was up there too. Yes. That was a big was that one, one that nearly was, I was like, nearly Yeah, yeah, and then I'm like, wait, I just, the Venus and Incred- It's hard just because great novels, great books are just, they're just, all of them profoundly affect you. And, yeah. You know, but... But Amy Bloom was the first, other than maybe the Bronte sister, like I said, but mm-hmm. that I really was like, oh, she's writing from this place that I have never experienced a woman writing from right. in contemporary, but writing about, uh, you know, historic, historical fiction. Right. But, yeah. And then you, your last book is A Visit from the Goon Squad, which I Jennifer also Egan. loved. Jennifer Egan, 2011. Tell me why this one made the cut. What was it? What about this? Well, I know. Was I was torn shaper. between this, oddly, and Turgenev, uh, Torrance of Spring. Oh, there you go. Because <laughs> they're so similar. Um, no, because... Lucky Jennifer oh, Egan. Well, Jennifer Egan, again, another female author for me that has this deft ability to write sort of about pop culture and about current stuff. And for me, I usually shy away from that. And I think that's why Beach Reads or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm like not interested in because mm-hmm. I want to escape into a really deep, rich world or of character mm-hmm. or um, she has, I feel like this ability to write contemporary and even future like a visit from the goon squad and from so many different perspectives, but also have this, this really wicked wit and mm, irony yeah. and, but deep, deep sense and, and humor, mm. but huge pathos and just gutting sadness that mm. just really gets me in mm. all of her books. So, but that one, I remember reading that and then going, I think I had read, had I read her others? Emerald City, and then the one about the model, but... I don't know that one. I only know The Keep and this one. That's and Yeah, I read all... There's Emerald City, and there's another one about the this model that... Uh, or Look at Me, I think it is, but 
everything she writes, I want to read, and I've been dying. And then, of course, Paul Edelstein's sister knows her really well. Oh, and really? I really I he's like, I, well, I could introduce you. I'm like, well, we have to make that happen. <laughs> I really want to meet How her. How have we been friends this long? I know. How is that? <laughs> but I was anxiously and just found out when I was looking it up, because, of course, I said, welcome to the Goon Squad, but it's a visit from the Goon Squad, that her new novel's coming out, which I'm really excited to read. When um, did you... This came out in 2011. Do you remember where you were when you were reading? That's the thing. I was here in L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't want to put it down. I don't really have anything more interesting to say about it. Except I also love that it was the way she told the book, for the story. From There were just so many different um, taking turns and sort of all these different points of view and, yeah. and people. And, and I loved her, this sort of character study of these, say, this little group of characters, but also this future tripping that she kind of does with the wall in New York and the hand, the starfish and the windmills and the, you know, climate change and all of this stuff that I felt was so awesome and imminent and, you know, specific. Yeah. It's fun that, isn't it? It's, it's fun when, um, it's such a gift, I think, to be able to write about the future as an author and to still, to ride that wave of keeping it, um, real and grounded and characters still behaving in a recognizable way but just with this shift in the background where the future is 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 just the format against which you, well, you're not distracted by it. You know it's, what I mean? Yes. You're still where you're still focused on the human interaction rather than dazzled by it's emotionally, the emotionally yeah, it's, it's emotionally driven and psychologically driven yeah. and you've been with these people so it's sort of like that not to, you know, make a really maybe not fair compared, but that last episode of Six Feet Under where they future trip and there's yeah. that, and you're just like gutted. And yeah. for me, it's the same way. And why I, it was odd that I was thinking about <laughs> Torrance of Spring uh-huh. because there is a thing with time, and Ian McEwen does it too, and mm-hmm. that loss, that irretrievable loss of like you can never, what has been done has been done, and you can never go back. And he nails it, of course, in, in atonement, mm-hmm. but you're just like the one thing that changed the course of everything forever mm-hmm. and cannot be undone. And, and do you believe be able- in that? I don't know if I believe in it, but I'm definitely deeply... I think, okay, when I was looking at it, because I, I told you last night, it might be Torrance of Spring. Because Torrance of Spring, it's it, I haven't read Remembrance of Things Past. I hope to one day. But the Torrance of Spring... <laughs> you let me know drink, how that works. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. <laughs> when read, I really, read it for me. I guess I have to break another shoulder to do that. <laughs> oh, no, God, I'm kidding. Don't, don't even say it. Um, but I, I feel like to have one of my biggest fears hasn't been about dying or mm-hmm. if aging it's more like what if i'm haunted by memories or what if i'm haunted by loss or the loneliness by- of memories and that's all i i don't know i don't know how mm. to it's not but haunted by haunted by memories of things you've done or things you've left undone or both. i think maybe both or like one false move or one uh. thing or i'm really intrigued by that mm. you know and in torrents of spring it's there's, you know, he finds a garnet cross and then it, he's an old man and he looks back. I don't know the, the book. Oh my God. It's great. It's an easy, it's a really beautiful, simple read, but it's so, it was that thing that just affected me of like, he made one, just this idea, this mythic, like he made, he, he chose this road and right. it was love. It's like the ba- basic lesson of love versus lust, which right. is something my father, before he died, was like, love is the most important thing, not lust. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I love the differentiation. <laughs> Let's be clear. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm sort of digress, but with Jennifer Egan, I felt like that thing of going, taking these characters that you've been with now 
and and their nation sort of stages and their very even contemporary struggles, but then going forward in a in this future, this imaginative world, and feeling so like attached to them mm. and kind of gutted yeah. by all the loss and everything they, that they've been in that has ensued and that they've endured is mm. was like a really yeah yeah I love that book too I really did I thought it was beautifully written it's funny it's just talking about the future stuff I'm I, I just finished this book on vacation called The Power which is wonderful um, it is light but I really recommend it she's called Naomi Alderman she's it's an English book I think it comes out here this month it's already oh, out really? in the UK and um, the premise is so ingenious and wonderful it's the, the it's set way deep into the future and women have been running the world for thousands of years thousands and thousands wow. of years other than that the world is exactly the same the geography of it everything it's just that they um are trying to reconstruct from fragments of leftover civilizations what patriarchal society must have looked like and they're trying to figure and they sort of can't believe like there's a little series of letters between these two people who are giggling at the idea and then trying to remain serious about it but back in the day when armies were made up of men and how hilarious that must have been and then oh, interesting it's, it's it's wonderful and the whole book is framed by these two letters it's a man who's writing a no- what he thinks is a historical novel or a piece of historical fiction about the past when men were in charge or about the moment when women took over power. right 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 so he's writing a letter to his editor saying here's the manuscript forgive me it's really imperfect and there's loads of leaps of faith and I really hope you'll bear with me and what's so wonderful is just the letters alone the framing device because the the manuscript is obviously the novel itself and then there's a letter at the end where the editor replies back to the to the author and the editor is a woman and the way the man writes to his editor is the way women write these days. It's so brilliant and so subtle, but the letter, his letter to his editor is full of open-ended statements and exclamation marks and hope you like it, hope I didn't, hope I didn't go too far. And oh, I, funny. I winced reading it. I mean, I, I pray I don't write emails like that, but I recognize that at some point I have and still do on occasion. But there was something um, supplicatory and open-ended and slightly wistful about the whole tone and this with is which, the male and that's the yeah. male author writing to his editor and the female editor oh, is writing so with these funny. really declarative short brisk sentences saying great I'll get to it when I can look forward to reading it and it's it, just the, the topsy-turvy of it is, is wonderful that's hysterical and that's, that's just really the framing great. device yeah. that's cool. and then the book itself is great it's a quick read and it's really fun and I really recommend it So oh good 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 the power um, now I have a, a quick list of these are just quick questions you zoom through them you answer what you can and what you feel like what was the last book that made you cry oh all the light we cannot see oh yeah yeah sobbed yeah yeah beautiful one mm-hmm. um i mean i only because i just read that in the spring did when you? i was yeah in new york yeah it's a beautiful book yeah i wept in that too I yeah um what's the book you're most ashamed of loving is there one? Oh my god <laughs> Uh oh my gosh. I don't I can't think of one. What's yours? Do you have one? Um I was trying to think of mine too. I I uh 
I did not love Fifty Shades of Grey, but I did read it. Oh, you did? <laughs> I did read I read them Good all. Good for you. I read them all because I read everything. You yeah, know, and I always I feel know. like, I should, I should know. Um, I read all of the Game of Thrones books. I don't remember a single word of any of them. But yeah, I, I felt remember. like I have to I have to read these. I have to know what is happening in the world. I know. I don't um, have, you have that, that voracious appetite. No, but it's also coupled with a completely colander for a memory so I hold on to like a sentence of that's how I 30. am that's okay I'm glad to hear oh, that yeah, because no, no, I'm no, no, like no. wait a minute I know no, I, had I, to love... re- I had to go to the internet and make yeah, sure I hadn't read how but, it like, but I did love Summons to Memphis everything that you oh, I that mean was a good one. yeah were you the one that said just go whatever's nominated for the you know if there's a, if it's a Pulitzer nominated someone once told me like here's a good thing to do check out if the nominees yeah if it's nominated a winner or on the short list like you know it's gonna be like there's something's gonna be that's a good tip okay so so what um, else? Is there a book or author you feel most guilty about not having read? Yes. Um, well, I have it. It's on my... I have the new translation of Anna Karenina. Oh, so fun. I just finished it. Did the one? Wonderful. No. With the man and the woman translating? Well, the man and the woman did it a while ago. So it's yeah. not It's a, not a new translation. Oh, it isn't? One. No. Oh, I thought... But then they went... They. I thought... Because, you know, Maria Dizia told me about that. Right? Yeah. She's like, this is the one to read. It, it is but the one... But I have to wait winter. And okay. it's not a summer okay. book. <laughs> it's not a beat. I can read it here. I just so read I it in be- Tuscany and it was You did? Fine. And it was yeah, fine? I know. Somebody gave me a lot of shit for it I was trying to read it in Lisbon. They're like, you know what? Not Anna Karenina. You're Anna Karenina. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. You're in for such a treat. Um, Kindle, print, audiobook. Do you have a preference? Print. Always. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, fiction versus non do you read non-fiction fiction for sure always yeah pretty mm-hmm. much like I mean this woman with, with you know one with the wolves is like interesting but it's like a side piece so it's like right now I have like poetry um, like David White I'm reading like yeah. and then uh a non-fiction piece and just to sort of peruse through and then uh, there's got to be a fiction yeah 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 but that's what I jibed that's what I really respond to always um I think you just answered this. Who do you take your book recommendations from? <laughs> Sonia Walger. Um, Pulitzer Prize winners. exclusively. But no, and then, uh, I mean, my brother before you was always my brother. Yes. Joe or Sean. Yeah, Joe. Joe. Yeah. But then Sean too, but my brother Sean is more of a nonfiction reader. He's reading like Studs Durkle work. He's just like in there. We've all, my dad was a voracious reader. My mother is a big reader. I mean, we all love to read, uh-huh. but it's just, Joe was always more the classics. Right. And uh, so he read everything he right. has read Proust I'm like good, good for you so <laughs> least someone in the family someone in the family it's perfect has. yeah no one in my family has yeah um again you've just talked about this but poetry yes no indifference yes yeah. that's been recent you know I'll talk what this is you're gonna have to edit this down but mm. you can put it in. no I put everything so in. when I had you know a couple years ago a brain tumor mm-hmm. <laughs> and part of my symptoms were I was trying to read as I told you before, Murakami, the Wind Up Bird Chronicles, which is dense anyway. Um, that was Joe Walsh was like, you gotta read this. And I was like, boy, this is really dense. And I'm not able to really kind of no, do you know more than a dense? couple sentences. No, the tumor that's in my brain. Yeah, actually that's it's a what's... tumor in my brain. But when I was recovering from brain surgery, this is a whole other podcast, but it Poetry was really helpful. Really? Because it was, and even before, and I just thought it was my short attention span uh-huh. due to our modern culture and uh-huh. devices. I could take it in. Mm-hmm. I could take in just short sentences or a poem easier and process it uh, easier than uh, my. I couldn't retain, I couldn't focus or concentrate that long. Isn't that the interesting? Exhaustion. Yeah. Because poetry is, li- is just metaphor, right? Yeah. And how interesting that, that your brain could 
could unpack that mm-hmm. in a, that was more digestible than pages of literal yeah, the, sto- narrative. Yeah, it was too exhausting yeah. for me in the beginning. And then I loved it just as, as a tool to have all the time. Part of it was Kim Gillingham, we, we both work with, but just as a practice before I go to bed to read a line of poetry yeah. so that I have that image Do you still? in my head. Yeah, That's yeah. so I usually I have David White, I have Salt, I have... Uh-huh. Oh my God! I have like salt, which is Nair Wahid. Nair Wahid. Oh Amazing. my God! That was the biggest gift ever, That's which I've regifted one. so many times to many people. Um, Mary Oliver. Mary Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So those sort of three, and then Pablo Neruda just made it in. Game. Yeah. Steal that. Well, also because to stop from not having the phone be the last thing. Sure. So and sometimes when it's the end of the day, if I'm not really entrenched in a novel mm-hmm. it's easier for me to read a line of poetry mm-hmm. or just some poems and then Lovely. that's it yeah add um voyage of the sable venus uh, voyage of the sable venus Robin yes cost lewis that's yeah. gonna be a great one to have by the bed i gotta write that down yeah um is there a book you wish you'd written is there meaning i mean you can say anna karenina but i mean do you do you have literary aspirations i know you write i know you yeah written. you know there's always a part of it's funny when we were talking about i was just thinking about that there's such a, you know, so many women are writing memoirs or mm. writing their stories or essays. Mm. And I've always thought I would love to do that because mm. I have so many stories and I've had such a incredible Huge life. A huge life. Yeah. But I think the thing that thus far holds me back is, I, 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 there's that age old thing, I guess, of not... I love amazing writing mm. and I wouldn't be an amazing writer. I can tell a good story mm-hmm. and I really love the oral tradition. Mm-hmm. But so I don't know if it's just heretofore lack of discipline of sitting down, but also I don't know mm. if I feel like I want to get in that. It's like a sacred area mm. for me. I so understand. Right? So you're like, if you're not going to be excellent at it, why do it? Yeah. yeah. And that sounds so basic. And no, like, I, like, like an artist or a mentor would say that, no, you must persevere. Yeah. But you're like, really? Must I? Must I? <laughs> really? Must? And, and I feel like so many, and I get very jaded sometimes about all the people that are writing their little, their, everybody's like, you're writing a book, aren't you? And I'm like, mm-hmm. really? It yeah. feels like it, I have this kind of critical as- mind about it right now of mm-hmm. like the culture, the pop culture. Everybody's got, you know, oh, I'm writing, you, you're naturally writing a book and it's mm-hmm. sort of annoying to me. Yeah. You yeah. know? I do know. I do. I also. It's that age of the internet, you know? Yeah. You're like, everybody's writing a book. You're like, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe, maybe you should read other people's books. <laughs> like, right. I know, that I sounds still like think cunty, you have a but. Really, yeah. really good collection of essays in you, but I'll, I'll let it slap. Okay, thank you. Um, what do you wish you read more of, if anything? I mean, Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't read any Henry mm-hmm. James. Yeah, so those are on the list. Like, okay. just, yeah. Um, is there a book you liked that you thought you'd hate? That's a great question. Um, no. No. Um, and do you read when you work? And how does work reading affect your work? Yeah, I got into a place here in LA. It's so easy to do, and then I just made a conscious decision um, to just always have a book going mm. because it's very easy when you're and when you and you have kids and you're you know when you're working and shooting, it's very easy to just not have mm-hmm. a book. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I think it's important to always have one. I don't know why. Mm. So, because for years I was like, oh, or for like when we're in the height of it, you're like, no, you get pulled into this business and there's so much going on. I'm exhausted. So 
but you start otherwise you just start being a person that just reads articles right you know yeah and that's just soul killing yeah i agree no it's interesting i find that um the writers that i've spoken to struggle to read when they work the actors can't do without it but oh that's interesting yeah. but i would imagine because don't you find as it because you write as well when i read a book and if i'm writing at the time i will start taking on the oh, i'll start writing the that style book. yeah oh, that, or, book, yeah, that terrible past yeah exactly but or i'll start taking on the style because no. you're reading it and we're actors and we're sponges totally. so you're just like i'm starting to write in the style of, of amy david sedaris writing or, a tragedy so yeah this is fucked up. Yeah. right Okay, so this is a question that I love asking. What is the book that makes you you know you look good when you recommend it? This is your surefire, oh. this will get you laid if you're reading it at a bar book. Revolutionary Road. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Who can argue with that? <laughs> so glad. It's so per- it is a perfect book. It is it's perfect. perfectly it's written. It's one of my five, you know that, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, but it is a perfect book. Yeah. And it's male, and it's the fifth. It's so, it's so gonna get you laid. So You're like, you what's late. up? I know. Boom, enjoy <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good. Okay, last question. You get to take one book to your desert island. What is it? Oh, that's great. Oh, see, maybe, oh, do you want it to be a long one? I mean, maybe Atonement. Oh, lovely. But you wanted to go on and on forever. And there's also, I didn't put this one in the Book Thief, which I love, which is considered young adult fiction. Oh, yeah, did you that one. Yeah, the Spanish also, blanking on his name. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I did read the Book Thief. It was lovely. I don't know why I loved that. I was really moved by that one. But, yeah, but I would take probably Atonement. Great. Kate Walsh, you're a dream guest. Thank you so oh, much for so doing nice. my podcast. Oh, you're so nice. Thank you. Thank lovely. you. Thanks so much for listening to this week's interview. If you like the show, please write us a review on iTunes on the website. It really makes a difference. Rate us, give us some stars, let your friends know, let your family know, tell everyone you can. Go to the website, bookishwithsoniawalga.com if you want to find out about any of the books that you heard about. We list there not only the five favorites, but every single book that is referenced. You can also buy the books through the website and uh, we make a tiny, tiny little percentage of whatever you buy through the website. So if you are interested, please go ahead and click on that. You can find us on Facebook. We have a Bookish with Sonia Walger page. You can find us on Twitter with at Bookish Sonia or at SoniaWalger.com. And you could also email me through the info at Bookish with page. If you hit on contact, it'll just automatically pop up as an email there. Um, so if you have any ideas for guests that you'd like to hear from or thoughts that you have about the show, please don't hesitate to share them there. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show.